Our previous episode was all about George Grossmith, actor, singer, comedian and writer. Together with his brother Whedon, he wrote one of the funniest books of all time. And today, Blue Fire Theatre Company is pleased to present... The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Adapted and abridged by Tim Shaw. Diary of a Nobody. Scene, London, 1892. Why should I not publish my diary? I've often seen reminiscences of people I've never even heard of, and I fail to see, because I do not happen to be a somebody, why my diary should not be interesting. My only regret is that I did not commence it when I was a youth. My dear wife Carrie and I have been just a week in our new house, the Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway, a nice six-roomed residence, not counting the basement, with a front breakfast parlour. We have a nice little back garden, which runs down to the railway. We were rather afraid of the noise of the trains at first, but the landlord said we should not notice them after a bit, and took two pounds off the rent. He was certainly right, and beyond the cracking of the garden wall at the bottom, we've suffered no inconvenience. After my work in the city, I like to be at home— What's the good of a home if you're never in it? Home, sweet home, that's my motto. I'm always in of an evening. Our old friend Going may drop in without ceremony. So may Cummings, who lives opposite. But Carrie and I can manage to pass our evenings without friends. There's always something to be done. A tin-tack here, a Venetian blind to put straight, a fan to nail up, all of which can be done with my pipe in my mouth. While Carrie is not above putting a button on the shirt, or practising the... Sylvia Gavotte on our new cottage piano. It's also a great comfort to us to know that our boy Willie is getting on so well at the bank at Oldham. We should like to see more of him. Now, for my diary. <clears throat> April 3rd. Tradesman called for custom, and I promised Farmerson, the ironmonger, to give him a turn if I wanted any nails or tools. Our dear friend Going dropped in, but wouldn't stay, saying there was an infernal smell of paint. April 4th. A carry arranged with Borset, the butterman, from whom we took a pound of fresh butter and a shilling's worth of eggs. In the evening, Cummings dropped in, but said he wouldn't stay, as he didn't care much for the smell of paint, and fell over the boot scraper as he went out. Must get that scraper removed, or I shall get into a scrape. <laughs> I don't often make jokes. April 5th. Going called and fell over the boot scraper coming in. Must get that scraper removed. April 6th. Eggs for breakfast. Simply shocking. Sent them back to Borset with my compliments and eat and call for any more orders. Couldn't find my umbrella and had to leave in the pouring rain. Sarah, the maid, said Mr. Going must have took it by mistake as there was a stick in the hall that don't belong to nobody. In the evening heard someone talking in a loud voice to the servant and went down to find Borset, the butterman, who was both drunk and offensive. Borset, on seeing me, declared, "'I'll be hanged if I serve city clerks any more. The game ain't worth a candle.' I replied that I thought it was possible for a city clerk to be a gentleman. He replied, "'I'm very glad to hear it. And have you ever come across one, for I haven't?' He left the house, slamming the door, 
and I heard him fall over the boot scraper, which made me very glad I hadn't removed it. After he'd gone, I thought of a splendid answer I should have given him. However, it will keep for another occasion. April 9th, called at Farmerson's, the ironmonger, and gave him the job of moving the boot scraper. Farmerson came round to attend to the scraper himself, saying he does not usually attend to such small jobs personally, but for me he would do so. I thanked him and went out. Left Farmerson moving the boot scraper, but came home to find three men working. I asked the meaning of it, and Farmerson said that in making a fresh hole he had penetrated the gas pipe. He said it was a ridiculous place to put the gas pipe, and the man who did it evidently knew nothing about his business. In the evening going came round and began his usual sniffing. So, anticipating him, I said, "'You're not going to complain of the smell of paint again?' He said, "'No, but I'll tell you what, I distinctly smell dry rot.' I don't often make jokes, but I replied, "'You're talking a lot of dry rot yourself.' I could not help roaring at this, and Carrie said her sides quite ached with laughter. I never was so immensely tickled with anything I'd said before. I actually woke up twice during the night and laughed till the bed shook. April 25th. Bought two tins of red enamel paint and painted some flower pots, which looked remarkably well. Went upstairs to the servant's bedroom and painted her washstand, towel horse and chest of drawers. To my mind, it was an extraordinary improvement. But as an example of the ignorance of the lower classes in the matter of taste, Sarah said... "'If I look very well as I was before.' "'April the 27th. Got some more enamel paint. "'Painted the bath red and was delighted with the result. "'Sorry to say, Carrie was not. "'In fact, we had a few words about it. "'Got some black and touched up the fender. "'Picture frames and an old pair of boots. "'Also painted Going's walking stick and made it look like ebony. "'April 29th, Sunday.' Woke up with a fearful headache and decided to have a bath as hot as I could bear it. I got in and lay still for some time. But on moving my hand above the water, I experienced the greatest fright of my life. For imagine my horror at finding my hand apparently covered in blood. My first thought was that I'd ruptured an artery and should be discovered looking like a second Jean-Paul Marat, as I remember seeing him in Madame Tussauds. However, it was nothing but the enamel paint which had dissolved in the hot water— I stepped out of the bath perfectly red all over, and determined to say nothing to Carrie, but to tell Farmerson to come on Monday and paint the bath white. April the 30th perfectly astounded at receiving an invitation to the Lord Mayor's Ball. My heart beat like that of a schoolboy. I said, Carrie, darling, I was a proud man when I led you down the aisle on our wedding day, but that pride will be equalled, if not surpassed, when I lead my dear, pretty wife up to the Lord and Lady Mayoress at the Mansion House. May the 1st. I told Mr. Perk up at the office that we had received an invitation to the Mansion House, and he said, to my astonishment, that he himself gave in my name to the Lord Mayor's secretary. I felt this rather discounted the value of the invitation, but thanked him. May the 3rd. While speaking to Spotch, one of our head clerks, about the mansion house, he said, uh, Oh, I'm asked, but uh, don't think I shall go. When a vulgar man like Spotch is asked, I feel my invitation is considerably discounted. May the 7th. A big red-letter day. Viz the Lord Mayor's ball.
the whole house upset. I had to get dressed at half-past six, as Carrie wanted the room to herself. Several times I had in my full evening dress to answer the back door. The last time it was the grocer's boy, who, not seeing it was me, pushed two cabbages and half a dozen coal blocks into my hands. I threw them to the ground, and so far forgot myself as to box the boy's ears. He went away crying and said he should summons me, a thing I should not have happened for the world. In the dark I slipped on a piece of cabbage. Oh! which brought me down on the flags all of a heap, whereupon I discovered that my chin was bleeding, my shirt smeared with the coal blocks, and my trousers torn at the knee. At nine o'clock, Carrie swept into the room like a queen. I thought perhaps her dress was a little too long behind, and decidedly too short in front. She also took an ivory fan with red feathers, the value of which, she said, was priceless, as the feathers belonged to the Cachu Eagle, a bird now extinct. We arrived at the mansion house, and I shall never forget the grand sight. My humble pen can never describe it. I was a little annoyed with Carrie, who kept saying, Isn't it a pity we don't know anybody? There was an immense crowd in the supper room, and my stars, it was a splendid supper. Any amount of champagne. I was so thirsty I could not eat much. Receiving a sharp slap on the shoulder, I turned, and to my amazement saw Farmerson, our ironmonger. He said, in a most familiar way, this is better than Brickfield Terrace, eh? I simply looked at him and said coolly, I never expected to see you here. He said with a loud, coarse laugh, Ha! I like that. If you, why not me? I replied, certainly. I wish I could have thought of something better to say. But before I could, one of the sheriffs in full court costume came up and slapped him on the back and hailed him as an old friend. To think that a man who mends our scraper should know a member of our aristocracy... Farmerson then seized me by the shoulder and said, Let me introduce me neighbour, Pooter. Didn't even say mister. The sheriff handed me another glass of champagne and I told him it was a great honour to drink with him. We chatted for some time before I rejoined Carrie, but when I approached her she said, Don't let me take you away from your friends. I'm quite happy over here, knowing nobody. As it takes two to quarrel, and knowing how much she used to admire my dancing, I gave her my arm and we commenced a waltz. A most unfortunate accident occurred. I'd got on a new pair of boots. Foolishly, I'd admitted to take Carrie's advice, namely to scratch the soles with the points of the scissors. I had scarcely started when my left foot slipped away, and I came down, the side of my head striking the floor. I need hardly add that Carrie fell with me with equal violence, breaking the comb in her hair. There was a roar of laughter which was immediately checked when people saw that we'd hurt ourselves. I expressed myself pretty freely on the dangers of having a polished floor with no carpet to prevent people slipping, and a gentleman assisted Carrie to her seat and offered her a glass of wine, an invitation which I was pleased to allow Carrie to accept. I met Farmerson, who said in his loud voice, "'Are you the one that went down?' Then, with execrable taste, he said, "'Look here, old man,' We're too old for this game. Come and have another glass. That's more in our line. Neither Carrie nor I, after our unfortunate mishap, felt inclined to stay. As we were going, Farmerson said, Are you off? If so, you might give me a lift. I thought it better to consent, but wish I'd first consulted Carrie. May the 8th. I woke up with a most terrible headache. I thought at first of sending for a doctor. When up, I felt faint and went to Brownish's, the chemist who gave me a draft. So bad at the office, I had to get leave to come home, 
Went to another chemist in the city and got another draught. Brownish's dose seems to have made me worse. To make matters worse, Carrie, every time I spoke to her, answered me sharply. That's when she answered at all. In the evening I felt worse again and said to her, I do believe I've been poisoned by the lobster mayonnaise at the mansion house. She replied without looking up. Champagne never did agree with you. May the 9th. Still a little shaky, with black specks. Carrie had commenced her breakfast when I entered the parlour. I said, perfectly calmly and quietly, uh, Carrie, I wish a little explanation of your conduct yesterday. She replied, Really? And I require more than a little explanation of your conduct the night before. I said, coolly, I don't understand you. Carrie said sneeringly, Probably not. You were scarcely in a condition to understand anything. I was astonished at this insinuation and simply ejaculated, Caroline, she said. Don't be theatrical. Reserve that tone for your new friend, Mr Farmerson, the ironmonger. I was about to speak when Carrie told me to hold my tongue and said, Now I'm going to say something. After professing to snub Farmerson, you permit him to snub you, then take champagne with him, and you don't limit yourself to one glass. You then offer this vulgar man who made a bungle of repairing our scraper a seat in our cab. I say nothing of his tearing my dress getting in, or of treading on my fan, but you smoked all the way home without having the decency to ask my permission. That is not all. At the end of the journey, although he had not offered a farthing towards the fair, you asked him in. At least he was sober enough to detect from my manner that his company was not desirable. To make matters worse, going into the room without knocking, with two hats on his head and the garden rake in his hand, with Carrie's fur tippet round his neck and announced himself in a loud, coarse voice, His Royal Highness the Lord Mayor! He marched twice round the room like a buffoon before saying, Hello? What's up? Lovers quarrel? There was a silence for a moment. I said quietly, My dear going, I'm not well and not in the humour for joking. Going said, I'm very sorry. I call for my stick, which I left here. I handed him his stick. He looked at it for a moment with a dazed expression and said, Who did this? Who destroyed my stick? It belonged to my poor uncle, and I value it more than anything I have in the world. I said, I'm very sorry. I dare say it will come off. I did it for the best. Going said, it's a confounded liberty. I would add you're a bigger fool than you look, only that's absolutely impossible. May the 22nd purchased a new stick mounted with silver, which cost seven and six, she'll tell Carrie five shillings, and sent it round with a nice note to Going. May the 23rd received a strange note from Going. He wrote, offended, not a bit, my boy. I found out, after all, it was not my poor uncle's stick. What a shilling thing I bought at a tobacconist's. However, I'm much obliged for your handsome present all the same. August the 4th. The first post brought a letter from our dear son Willie. To our utter amazement, he turned up himself in the afternoon, having journeyed all the way from Oldham. He said he'd got leave from the bank, and, as Monday was a holiday, he would surprise us. August 5th. We had not seen Willie since Christmas, and are pleased to notice what a fine young man he's grown into. Although I rather disapprove of his wearing a check suit on a Sunday, and I think he ought to have gone to church this morning, but he said he was tired after yesterday's journey, so I refrained from any remark on the subject. 
We had a bottle of port for dinner and drank dear Willie's health. He said, Oh, by the by, did I tell you I've cut my first name William and taken the second name Lupin? In fact, I'm only known at Oldham as Lupin Pooter. Lupin being a family name, Carrie was delighted and gave a long history of the Lupins. I ventured to say that I thought William a nice simple name and reminded him that he was christened after his uncle William. Willie, in a manner in which I did not much care for, said, Good old Bill, and helped himself to a third glass of port. Carrie objects strongly to my saying good old, but she made no remark when Willie used the double adjective. I said nothing but looked at her, which meant more. I said, My dear Willie, I hope you're happy with your colleagues at the bank. He replied, Lupin, if you please. And with respect to the bank, there is not a clerk who is a, a gentleman, and the boss is a cad. August the 6th. As there was no sign of Lupin moving at nine o'clock, I knocked at his door and said we usually breakfasted at half-past eight. He said he could do with a cup of tea and didn't want anything to eat. Lupin not having come down, I went up again at half-past one and said we dined at two. He never came down till a quarter to three. I said we've not seen much of you, and you'll have to return by the 5.30 train. He said, Look here, Governor, it's no use beating about the bush. I've tendered my resignation at the bank. For a moment I could not speak. When my speech came again, I said, "'How dare you take such a serious step without consulting me?' "'Don't answer me, sir. You will sit down immediately and write a note, withdrawing your resignation and amply apologising for your thoughtlessness.' Imagine my dismay when he replied with a loud guffaw. <laughs> "'It's no use. If you want the good old truth, I got the chuck.'" August the 19th. I was about to read Lupin a sermon on smoking, which he indulges in violently, but he put on his hat and walked out. Carrie then read me a long sermon on the palpable inadvisability of treating Lupin as if he were a mere child. I felt she was somewhat right, so in the evening offered him a cigar. He seemed pleased, but after a few whiffs said, This is a good old tuppany. Try one of mine. And he handed me a cigar as strong as it was long, which was saying a good deal. And he went out. It was past midnight when we were startled by hearing the door slam violently. Lupin came in and went straight up to bed. I asked him to come down and he begged to be excused as he was dead beat. An observation scarcely consistent with the fact that for a quarter of an hour afterwards he was positively dancing in his room and shouting out See me dance the polka! Or some such nonsense. November 3rd. Good news at last. Mr. Perkup has got an appointment for Lupin. I went to Lupin's room to see about it, but he was in bed, very seedy, so I resolved to keep it over to the evening. He said he had last night been elected a member of an amateur dramatic club called the Holloway Comedians. In the evening I had up a special bottle of port, and, Lupin being in for a wonder, we filled our glasses, and I said, Lupin, my boy, I have some good and unexpected news for you. Mr. Perkup has procured you an appointment. Lupin said, Good biz. And we drained our glasses. Lupin then said, Fill up the glasses again, for I have some good and unexpected news for you. I had some slight misgivings, and so evidently had Carrie, for she said, I hope we shall think it good news. Lupin said, Oh, it's all right. I'm engaged to be married. November the 5th, Sunday. 
Carrie and I are troubled about that mere boy Lupin getting engaged to be married without consulting us. He said the lady's name was Daisy Mutlar, and she was the nicest, prettiest, and most accomplished girl he'd ever met. He lived with an objective now, and that was to make Daisy Mutlar Daisy Pooter. November the 6th. Lupin went with me to the office and had a long conversation with Mr. Perkup, the result of which was that he accepted a clerkship in the firm of Job Cleanands and Company, stock and share brokers. In the evening, Lupin brought in Frank Mutlar, Miss Mutlar's brother, and a member of the Holloway Comedians. At supper, young Mutlar did several amusing things. He took up a knife and, with the flat part of it, played a tune on his cheek in a wonderful manner. He also gave an imitation of an old man with no teeth smoking a big cigar. As young Mutlar showed no inclination to go, and it was past midnight, I reminded Lupin that he had to be up early tomorrow. Mutlar then left, and I heard him and Lupin whispering something in the hall about the Holloway comedians. Then, to my disgust, Lupin put on his hat and coat and went out with his new companion. November the 10th. Lupin has Daisy Mutlar on the brain, so we see little of him, except that he invariably turns up at mealtimes. Daisy Mutlar the sole topic of conversation at tea— Carry almost as full of it as Lupin. November the 12th, Sunday. Coming home from church, Carrie and I met Lupin and Daisy Mutlar. Carrie invited her to supper on Wednesday next, with her brother, to meet a few friends, and she replied that she would be only too pleased. November 13th, Carrie sent out invitations to going and the Cummingses. She said, why not ask Mr. Perkop, our principal? I replied that I feared we were not grand enough for him, but wrote him a letter anyway. November the 14th. Everyone has so far accepted for our quite grand little party, even Mr. Perkup, who wrote that he was dining in Kensington, but would try to get away for now. Lupin came in, copped at the arrangements, and disapproved of everything, including our asking our old friend Cummings, who he said would look like a greengrocer engaged to wait, and we should not be surprised if Daisy took him for one. I fairly lost my temper, and said, Lupin, allow me to tell you Miss Daisy Mutlar is not the Queen of England. Instead of receiving this advice in a sensible manner, Lupin jumped up and said, If you insult the lady I'm engaged to, you insult me. I will leave this house and never darken your doors again. He went out, but came back at supper time, and we played bezique till nearly twelve o'clock. November the 15th, a red-letter day, our first important party since we've been in this house. Lupin insisted on having a hired waiter and stood a half a dozen of champagne, saying he'd made three pounds out of a private deal in the city. I do hope he won't gamble in his new situation. The supper room looked so nice, and Carrie truly said, We need not be ashamed of its being seen by Mr Perkup, should he honour us by coming. I dressed early, and was much vexed to find my new dress trousers much too short. Lupin, who was getting beyond his position, found fault in my wearing ordinary boots instead of dress boots. I replied satirically, My dear son, I have lived to be above that sort of thing. Lupin burst out laughing and said that a man generally was above his boots. This may be funny, or it may not, but I was gratified to find he'd not discovered that the coral had come off one of my shirt studs. The first arrival was going, who, with his usual taste, greeted me with, Hello, Pooter. Why, your trousers are too short. I simply said, very likely, and you'll find my temper short also. He said, well, that won't make your trousers longer, Juggins. You should get your missus, put a flounce on them. 
I wonder I waste my time entering his insulting observations in my diary. Daisy and Frank Mutlar arrived, along with some of the members of the Holloway comedians. Some of these seemed rather theatrical in their manner, especially one who was posing all the evening and who lent on our little round table and cracked it. Going annoyed me very much by filling a large tumbler of champagne and drinking it straight off. He repeated his action and made me fear our half-dozen of champagne would not last out. I tried to keep a bottle back, but Lupin got hold of it and took it to the side table with Daisy and Frank Mutler. We went upstairs and the young fellows began skylarking. I did not notice that Lupin and Frank had disappeared. I asked Mr. Watson, one of the Holloways, where they were, and he said, "'It's a case of, ho, what a surprise!' We were directed to form a circle, and Watson said, "'I have much pleasure in introducing the celebrated Blondin Donkey!' Frank and Lupin then bounded into the room. Lupin had whitened his face like a clown, and Frank had tied round his waist a large hearth rug. He was supposed to be the donkey. We were all shrieking with laughter. I turned around suddenly and saw Mr. Perkop standing in the doorway. I apologised for the foolery, but Mr. Perkop said, "'Oh, it seems amusing.' could see that he wasn't a bit amused. Carrie and I took him downstairs, but the table was a wreck. There was not a glass of champagne left, not even a sandwich. Mr. Perkop said, with a smile, "'I really require nothing, but I am most pleased to see you in your own home. Good night. Don't trouble to come into the office till twelve tomorrow.' I felt despondent, and I told Carrie I thought the party was a failure." Carrie said it was a great success and insisted that I have some more port. I drank two glasses and felt much better. Carrie and I had a little dance, which I said reminded me of old days. She said I was a spoony old thing. November 16th. Woke about twenty times during the night with a terrible thirst. Finished off all the water in the bottle as well as half that in the jug. Carrie annoyed me by saying, You know champagne never agrees with you. I told her I had only a couple of glasses of it having kept myself entirely to port, although I do think I ate too heartily of the side dishes. I said to Carrie, I wish I'd put the side dishes aside. I was just starting for the office when Lupin appeared, with a yellow complexion, and said, Hello, Gov. What price to have you this morning? I told him he might just as well speak to me in Dutch. He added, I woke up with a head as big as Baldwin's balloon. On the spur of the moment, I said the cleverest thing I think I've ever said— Perhaps that accounts for the parachuting pains. <laughs> we all three roared. November the 19th, Sunday. About nine o'clock, Lupin entered, with a wild, reckless look, and in a hollow voice, which I must say seemed rather theatrical, said, Have you any brandy? And drank off nearly a wine glassful without water to my horror. Carrie said, I hope Daisy is well. Lupin, with a forced, careless air that he must have picked up from the Holloway comedians, said, "'Oh, you mean Miss Mutler? I don't know whether she is well or not, but please, never to mention her name again in my presence.' November the 22nd. Going and Cummings dropped in. Lupin also came in, bringing his friend Mr. Berwin Fosselton, one of the Holloway comedians, who was at our little party the other night and who cracked our little round table.' Happy to say Daisy Mutler was never referred to. The young fellow Fosselton not only looked rather like Mr Irving, but seemed to imagine that he was the celebrated actor. I must say he gave some capital imitations of him. When he went, he said to our surprise, I will come tomorrow and bring my Irving make-up. November the 23rd. In the evening, Cummings came, 
so did Going, who brought, without asking permission, a fat, vulgar-looking man named Padge, who appeared to be all moustache. Going never attempted any apology, but said Padge wanted to see the Irving business, to which Padge said, "'That's right!' That's about all he did say during the entire evening. A Lupin came in with Mr. Berwin Fosselton, who went upstairs to get ready. In a few minutes, Lupin opened the door and announced, "'Mr. Henry Irving!' I must say we were all astounded. I never saw such a resemblance. The only person who did not appear interested was the man Padge, who'd got the best armchair and was puffing away at a foul pipe into the fireplace. After supper, Mr. Berwin Fosselton got a little too boisterous over his Irving imitation, and suddenly seizing Going by the collar, dug his thumbnail into Going's neck and took a piece of flesh out. Going was rightly annoyed, but that man Padge burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. I was so irate, I said, I suppose you would have laughed if he'd poked Mr. Going's eye out. To which Padge replied, <laughs> That's right! and laughed more than ever. I think perhaps the greatest surprise came at the end of the evening, when Mr. Berwin Fosselton said, Good night, Mr. Pooter! I'll bring the other make-up tomorrow night. November the 24th. Cummings came in the evening, but Going sent round a note to say that his neck was still painful, which rather amused me. Of course, Berwin Fosselton came, but Lupin never turned up. And imagine my utter disgust when that man Padge actually came again, and not even accompanied by Going. I said, Mr. Padge, this is a surprise. And Padge said, That's right, and took the best chair again. The Irving imitations and conversations occupied the whole evening, with Cummings saying that Mr. Berwin Fosselton was, in his judgment, just as good, if not better, than Mr. Irving. I remarked, without an original, there can be no imitation. To which Berwin Fosselton replied, Mr. Pooter, I should advise you to talk about what you understand. And that cad Padge added, That's right! When they left, I very pointedly said that we should be engaged tomorrow evening. November the 25th. In the evening, Going came in, and I spoke my mind pretty freely about Padge. Going said he'd met him only once before that evening, and as he, Padge, had stood a good dinner, Going wished to show him some little return. Upon my word, Going's coolness surpasses all belief. Lupin came in, and Going unfortunately inquired about Daisy Mutler. Lupin shouted, Mind your own business, sir! and bounced out of the room, slamming the door. The remainder of the night was Daisy Mutler. Oh, Daisy Mutler, oh, Daisy Mutler. December the 18th. Carrie and Lupin appear to take no interest in my diary which is a disappointment to me. At the breakfast table today I said, I'm sure it would prove quite as interesting as some of the ridiculous reminiscences that have been published lately. Lupin, in a jeering tone, said, If it had been written on larger paper, Gov, we might get a fair prize for the butterman for it. I said, Stop, Lupin, my boy. You are worried about Daisy Mutler. Don't think of her any more. Her notions are far too grand for our simple tastes. He jumped up and said, I won't allow one word to be uttered against her. She's worth the whole bunch of your friends, that inflated sloping head of a perk up included. I left the room with silent dignity, but caught my foot in the mat. December 23rd. In the evening I asked Lupin where he intended to spend his Christmas. He replied, Oh, 
most likely at the Mutlars. In wonderment, I said, what? After your engagement has been broken off? To which he replied, well, it's on again, so there. December the 30th, Sunday. Lupin spent the whole day with the Mutlars. He seemed cheerful, so I said, I'm glad to see you so happy, Lupin. He answered, Daisy is a splendid girl, but I was obliged to take her old fool of a father down a peg. What with his meanness over his cigars, his stinginess over his drinks, and his farthing economy in turning down the gas if only quit the room for a second. I was compelled to let him have a piece of my mind. I said, Lupin, you're not much more than a boy. I hope you won't repent it. December the 31st, the last day of the old year. I received an extraordinary letter from Mr. Mutlar, Sr. He writes, Dear Sir, for a long time past I have had considerable difficulty deciding the question, Who is the master of my own house? Myself or your son, Lupin? Believe me, I have no prejudice one way or the other, but I have been most reluctantly compelled to give judgment to the effect that I am the master of it. Under the circumstances, it has become my duty to forbid your son to enter my house again. I am sorry, because it deprives me of the society of one of the most modest, unassuming and gentlemanly persons I've ever had the honour of being acquainted with. January the 4th. In the evening I said to Lupin, uh, Pardon me, but how is it you've not been to the Mutlars any day this week? Lupin answered, I told you, I cannot stand old Mutlar. I said, well, he writes to me to say pretty plainly that he cannot stand you. Lupin said, Well, I like that. I'll find out if his father is alive and write to him complaining of his son and state pretty clearly that his son is a blithering idiot. Anyway, I'm determined not to enter his place again. I said, you know, Lupin, that he has forbidden you the house. Lupin replied, Well, we won't split straws. Daisy's a trump and would wait ten years for me. January the 5th. I can scarcely write the news. Mr. Perkop sent for me, and told me that I was to be promoted to the position of senior clerk, and my salary raised a hundred pounds. I stood gaping for a moment, unable to realise it. Carrie and I both rejoiced over our good fortune. Lupin came home in utmost good spirits, so at dinner I opened a bottle of champagne, and said to Lupin, "'This sister celebrate some good news.' Lupin replied, Hurrah, Gov! And I have some good news too. A double event, eh? I said, My boy, as a result of 21 years' industry and strict attention to the interests of my superiors in office, I have been rewarded with promotion and a rise in salary of £100. Lupin gave three cheers and ordered us to fill up again. Addressing us upstanding, he said, Having been in the firm of Job Cleanhands Stock and Share Brokers a few weeks, and not having paid particular attention to the interests of my superiors in office, my governor, as a reward to me, allotted me five pounds worth of shares in parachica chlorates. The result is, today I have made two hundred pounds. I said, Lupin, you're joking. No, Gov, it's the good old truth. February the 11th. In the evening, Frank Mutler called, bringing with him a tall, fat young man named Murray Posh, closely followed by Going. Going inquired, with his usual want of tact, "'Any relation to Posh's three-shilling hats?' Mr Posh replied, "'Yes, but uh, please understand, I don't try on 
hats myself. I take no active part in the business. He evidently knew Daisy Mutlar very intimately, and Frank said to Lupin once, "'If you don't watch out, Posh will cut you out.' When they'd gone, I referred to this flippant conversation, and Lupin said sarcastically, "'A man who would be jealous of an elephant like Murray Posh could only have contempt for himself. Daisy would wait ten years for me. In fact, she would wait twenty. February the 18th. In the evening, Lupin arrived home early and looked a little agitated. I said, "'What's up, my boy?' He hesitated a good deal and then said, "'You know those arachica chlorates I advise you to invest twenty pounds in? To the surprise of everybody, they have utterly collapsed.' My breath was so completely taken away I could say nothing. He went on, "'However, you are especially fortunate. I received an early tip and managed to get two pounds for them.' I gave a sigh of relief. I said I was not so sanguine as to suppose, as you predicted, that I should get six or eight times the amount of my investment. Still, a profit of two pounds is a good percentage for such a short time. Lupin said quite irritably, "'You don't understand.' I sold your £20 shares for £2. You've therefore lost £18 on the transaction, whereby going and comings will lose the whole of theirs. February the 19th. In the evening, Lupin was just on the point of going out to avoid a collision with going and comings when the former entered the room without knocking, but with his usual trick of saying, May I come in? Neither Lupin nor I broached the subject to him, but he did so of his own accord. He said, I say, those perichica chlorids have gone an awful smash. You're a nice one, Master Lupin. How much do you lose? Lupin, to my utter astonishment, said, Oh, I lose nothing. There was some informality in my application. I forgot to enclose the cheque or something, and I didn't get any. The gov loses £18. Going replied, Well, I lose nothing. From what I heard, I didn't quite believe in them so I persuaded Cummings to take my fifteen pounds worth. Lupin burst out laughing and said, Ha! 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 Alas! Poor Cummings! He'll lose thirty-five pounds! At that moment there was a ring at the front doorbell. Lupin said, I don't want to meet Cummings. And he opened the parlour window and got out. Going jumped up suddenly, exclaiming, I don't want to see him either! And he leapt out after Lupin. February the 20th. The first thing that caught my eye on opening the standard was Great failure of stock and share dealers. Mr. Job Cleanan's absconded. Lupin came down to breakfast, and seeing him painfully distressed, I said, We know the news, and handed him the standard. He threw it down and said, Oh, I don't care a button for that. I expected that, but I didn't expect this. And he read a letter from Frank Mutlar announcing that Daisy Mutlar is to be married to Murray Posh. I exclaimed, Murray Posh, is not that the very man that Frank had the impudence to bring here last Tuesday week? Lupin said, Yes, the Posh's three-shilling hats, chap. When Lupin rose to go, I noticed a malicious smile creep over his face, and he said, <laughs> I've just remembered. By my advice, Mr Murray Posh has invested £600 in parachica chlorates. March 20th. I wish Lupin would not go to so many music halls, but one dare not say anything to him about it. 
At the present moment, he irritates me by singing all over the house some nonsense about... What's the matter with Gladstone? He's all right. What's the matter with Lupin? He's all right. I don't think either of them is. March the 21st. Today is one of the happiest days of my life. Mr Perkup has asked me to take Lupin down to the office with me. He came down from his room dressed quietly and looking a perfect gentleman, except his face was rather yellow, and we were about to leave when I heard from the hall a great noise, and I found Lupin in a fury kicking and smashing a new tall hat. I said, Lupin, some poor fellow would be glad of that. Lupin replied, I wouldn't insult anyone by giving them it. When he'd gone outside, I picked up the hat and saw inside Posh's patent. At the office, Lupin was with Mr. Perkup for nearly an hour. When he emerged, I said, Well, Lupin, how about Mr. Perkup? Lupin commenced his song, What's the matter with Perkup? He's all right. I felt instinctively that my boy was engaged. I went up to Mr. Perkup and said, Mr. Perkup, you are a good man. He looked at me and said, No, Mr. Pooter, you are the good man. I said, May I go home? I can't work any more today. It was as much as I could do to prevent myself from crying on the bus. In fact, I should have done so had my thoughts not been interrupted by Lupin, who was having a quarrel with a fat man whom he accused of taking up too much room. April the 9th. Going called with an invitation for carrying myself to a ball given by the East Acton Rifle Brigade. We had a pleasant game of cards, though I lost four shillings and Carrie lost one, and Going said he'd lost about sixpence. How he could have lost, considering Carrie and I were the only other players, remains a mystery. April the 16th. The night of the East Acton Volunteer Ball. Lupin, in his usual incomprehensible language, remarked that he'd heard it was a bounders ball. Where he gets these expressions from, I don't know. He certainly doesn't learn them at home. As we were entering the supper room, I received a slap on the shoulder, followed by a welcome shake of the hand. I said, Mr. Padge, I believe. He replied, That's right. There was a very liberal repast on the tables, everything done regardless of expense. I asked Mr. Padge to join us, and a lady who was talking to Carrie, and we took a table. In fact, we were the only people there, everybody being so busy dancing. I poured champagne for the ladies and handed the bottle to Mr. Padge, saying, You must look after yourself. He replied, That's right! We all had some splendid pigeon pie and ices to follow. The waiters were very attentive, and I ordered some more wine for our party, and for some people who'd just come in from dancing. I thought some of them must know me in the city, as they were so polite. Mr. Padge escorted our party to the ballroom whilst I finished my supper. I said to Mr. Padge, This is quite a West End affair. And he replied, That's right! As I was leaving, a waiter tapped me on the shoulder. I gave him a shilling, as he'd been very attentive. He replied, Well, she's no good. Your party's had four suppers at five shillings, I had. Five ices at one shilling. Three bottles of champagne at eleven shillings and sixpence. A glass of claret and a six-minute cigar for the start, gentlemen. In all, three pounds and sixpence. <laughs> Don't think I was ever so surprised in my life. After turning out my pockets, I was just able to scrape up sufficient, all but nine shillings. But the manager, on my giving my card to him, said, um, That's all right. When we were made ready to leave, it was raining so hard the roads resembled canals, and we had great difficulty getting a cabman to take us to Holloway. A man said he would take us to the Angel at Islington, and we could easily get another cab from there. It was a tedious journey, and when we arrived, the horse seemed tired out. 
Then, to my absolute horror, I remembered I had no money, nor had Carrie. I explained to the cabman how we were situated. Never in my life have I been so insulted. The cabman, who to my mind was not sober, called me every name he could lay his tongue to, and seized me by the beard till tears came into my eyes. I called a policeman who said he couldn't interfere, that he'd seen no assault, and that people should not ride in cabs as had no money. We had to walk home in the pouring rain, and when we got home I wrote down the conversation with the cabman word for word, as I intend to write to the telegraph. May the 10th. Received an invitation to dine with Mr. Hardfur Huttle, a very clever writer for the American papers. Carrie rather demurred at the invitation, but I explained that we were sure to get a good dinner and a good glass of champagne. Which never agrees with you, Carrie replied sharply. I regarded this observation as unsaid. I sat next to a Mrs. Field, who seemed well informed, but was very deaf. It did not much matter, for Mr. Hartford Huttle did all the talking. He's a marvellously intellectual man, and says things which from other people would seem quite alarming. Mrs. Field happened to say, You are certainly unorthodox, Mr. Huttle. Mr. Huttle replied in a slow, rich voice, Orthodox is a grand eloquent word, implying sticking in the mud. If Columbus and Stevenson had been orthodox, there would have been neither the discovery of America nor the steam engine. It appeared to me that such teaching was absolutely dangerous, yet there was no answer to the argument. A little later, when the ladies rose to retire, Mr. Huddle said, "'Why, ladies, do you deprive us of your company so soon? Why not wait while we have our cigars?' The effect was electrical, and the ladies immediately resumed their seats. Mrs. Field said, "'We will be halfway, that is, till you get halfway through your cigar. That will be the happy medium.' "'Happy medium,' he replied. "'Do you know happy medium are two words which mean miserable mediocrity? "'I say go first class or third. "'Marry a duchess or a kitchen maid. "'The happy medium means respectability, "'and respectability means insipidness. "'Does it not, Mr. Pooter?' "'I was so taken aback by being addressed directly "'that I could only bow apologetically "'and say that I feared I was not competent to offer an opinion.' "'He continued,' The happy medium is nothing more than a vulgar half-measure. Belongs to a soft man with a soft beard, with a soft head, and a made tie that hooks on. This seemed rather personal, as I had on such a tie, and twice I caught myself looking in the mirror. But there was more. We've no use for deaf old women who cannot follow intellectual conversation. All our eyes turned to Mrs. Field, who fortunately was unable to hear this, and continued smiling approval. When we got home, I said, Carrie, what do you think of Mr. Hartford Huttle? She simply answered, How like Lupin? The comparison kept me awake half the night. May the 13th. A terrible misfortune has happened. Lupin is discharged from Mr. Perkop's office. As fate would have it, both Mr. Perkop and I had been away from the office when our most valued customer, Mr. Crobillon, went to the office in a rage and withdrew his custom. Lupin not only had the assurance to receive him, but recommended him the firm of Gilterson and Sons. In my own humble judgment, 
and though I say it against my own son, this seems an act of treachery.' "'You understand,' said Mr. Perkup, and I entered his office, "'that the high-standing nature of our firm will not admit of bending to anybody. "'If Mr. Crowbillon chooses to put his work into other hands, "'I may add less experienced hands, "'it is not for us to beg back his custom.' "'You shall not do it, sir,' I said with indignation. "'No,' he replied. "'You shall. "'You might write to Mr. Crowbillon "'and explain that your son is merely a clerk, "'taken on out of respect for you. "'I think the result will be "'that Mr. Crowbillon will see the foolish step is taken.' "'I could not help thinking "'what a noble gentleman Mr. Perkup is.' "'That evening at home, "'Lupin came in with a new hat on "'and asked my opinion of it. "'I said that I was not in a position "'to judge of hats nor he to buy one.' "'Lupin replied carelessly, "'Oh, I didn't buy it. It was a present.' "'I have grown so terribly suspicious of Lupin "'that I scarcely dare ask him questions. "'I dread the answers so. "'He, however, saved me the trouble. "'It's from an old friend, "'and a very different stamp from that inflated fool of a perker.' "'I said, Lupin, pray do not add insult to injury.' "'He replied, "'Crobilon is simply tired of that stick-in-the-mud firm. "'I recommended the new firm as a matter of biz.' "'Good old biz!' I said quietly, "'I don't understand your slang, so let us change the subject, "'and I will try to interest myself in your hat adventure. "'Who is your generous friend's name?' "'He replied with affected carelessness, "'Oh, Murray Posh!' "'May the 14th. "'Spent the whole day composing the letter to Mr. Crobillon. "'Once or twice I asked Carrie for suggestions, "'although none of them were to the point "'and some were absolutely idiotic.' May the 15th. Two letters came in the evening. One for me marked Crobillon Hall, the other for Lupin, which I felt inclined to read, as it had Gilterson and Sons stamped on the back. I trembled as I opened Mr. Crobillon's letter. I had written him sixteen pages. He wrote me less than sixteen lines. Dear sir, I totally disagree with you. Your son, in the course of five minutes' conversation, displayed more intelligence than your firm has done in the last five years. Yours faithfully, Gilbert E. Gillam Crobillon. The crisis had yet to come, for on opening his letter, Lupin showed me a cheque for twenty-five pounds, as a commission for the recommendation of Mr. Crobillon, whose custom to Mr. Perkop is evidently lost forever. May the 16th. I told Mr. Perkop the contents of the letter, in a modified form. He said, Pray don't discuss the matter. It is at an end. I went home in the evening thinking of the hopeless future of Lupin. I found him in extravagant spirits and a top hat. To my amazement he showed me a letter engaging him to Gilterson and Sons at a salary of £200 per year. Lupin said, What price perk up now? You take my tip, Gov. Off with perk up and freeze on to Gilterson, the firm of the future. And Carrie added, He is a second hard for Huttle. July the 1st. Today we lose Lupin, who has taken furnished apartments at Bayswater, near his friends Mr and Mrs Murray Posh, at two guineas a week. I think this is most extravagant of him, as it is half his salary. Lupin says one never loses by a good address, and, to use his own expression, Brickfield Terrace is a bit off.'
Whether he means it is far off, I don't know. I've long since given up trying to understand his curious expressions. July the 3rd. In the afternoon, a grand trap stopped at our door. Sarah came up and said it was Mrs Murray Posh and Mr Lupin. Lupin said, I want you both to come and dine with me next Wednesday and see my new place. Mr and Mrs Murray Posh and Miss Posh, Murray's sister, are coming. We promised to go, but I must say the familiar way in which Mrs Posh and Lupin addressed each other is reprehensible. July the 4th, Lupin's rooms looked very nice, but I think Lupin might have told us that they were going to put on full evening dress. We were introduced to Miss Posh, whom Lupin called Lily Girl, as if he'd known her all his life. She was very tall, rather plain, and I thought she was a little painted round the eyes. I hope I'm wrong, but she had such fair hair, and yet her eyebrows were black. She looked about thirty. I did not like the way she kept giggling and pinching Lupin, and her laugh was a sort of scream that went right through you, all the more irritating because there was nothing to laugh at. They all smoked cigarettes after dinner, including Miss Posh, who startled Carrie by saying, "'Don't you smoke, dear?' I answered for Carrie, saying, "'Mrs. Charles Pooter has not arrived at it yet.' Whereupon Miss Posh gave another one of her piercing laughs. On arriving home at a quarter past eleven, we found a hansom cab, which had been waiting for me for two hours, with a letter. The note was, "'Dear Mr. Pooter, come down to the Victoria Hotel without delay. Important.' Yours truly, heart for huddle. I reached the hotel at a quarter before midnight. To be brief, Mr. Huttle said he had a rich American friend who wanted to do something large in our line of business, and had mentioned my name to him. If, by any happy chance, the result be successful, I can more than compensate my dear master for the loss of Mr. Crobillon's custom. Mr. Huttle said, "'The glorious fourth is a lucky day for America.' And as it has not yet struck twelve, we will celebrate it with a glass of the best wine to be had in the place, and drink good luck to our bit of business. July the 10th. I have written a long letter to Lupin, feeling it my duty to do so, regarding his attention to Mrs. Posh. July the 11th. I find my eyes filling with tears as I pen the note of my interview this morning with Mr. Perkup. Addressing me, he said, My faithful servant, I will not dwell on the important service you have done our firm. You could never be sufficiently thanked. Let us change the subject. Do you like your house? Are you happy where you are? I replied, yes, sir. I love my house. I love the neighbourhood, and could not bear to leave it. Mr. Perkup, to my surprise, said, Mr. Pooter, I will purchase the freehold of that house, and present it to the most honest and most worthy man it has ever been my lot to meet. He shook my hand and said he hoped my wife and I would be spared many happy years to enjoy it. I sent telegrams to Carrie, going and comings, and asked the latter to come round to supper. They arrived in the evening, and the last post brought a letter from Lupin in reply to mine. I read it aloud to them all. It read, My dear old Gov, keep your hair on. You're, You're on the on wrong, the wrong tack back again. again. I'm engaged to be married to Lily Girl. We shall be married in August. And among our guests, we hope to see your old friends going and comings. With much, With love, much to all, love to all, on the same old Lupin. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith was adapted and abridged by Tim Shaw and directed by Steve Taylor. The Pooter family featured 
Andy Smith as Charles Pooter, Lottie Walker as Carrie, and Steve Taylor as Lupin. Studio production and editing was by Harry Jacobs, assisted by Jacob Taylor. The music was written by George Grossmith and played by James Hall. The Diary of a Nobody is a Blue Fire Theatre Company production. <laughs> ¶¶